Blog Talk Radio. September 13th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of the ideas behind American exceptionalism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and welcome to those of you who are joining me live over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. I understand that it's a little bit uh, sparse in there right now because I'm competing directly with Yaron Brook, who is speaking live from Paris right now. I guess he's finishing up his show. So maybe some more people will be filtering in as the show goes on, and that is fine. And, of course, if you miss part of the show, you can always catch up with the recorded podcast as well. So welcome to those of you who have jumped over here to join me. You know, I'm always competing with him sort of indirectly because you've got only so many things you can listen to in a week and I want to be included among those and and your own has a lot of content that he puts out there but I'm going to keep plugging away and of course I'm not always going to be competing for exactly the same people as well there's going to be you know people who are attracted to this show for reasons that are different and such so run over to the blog everybody don't let it go.com and you'll see Title of today's show, Reasons Plenty, What's at Stake When Ben Shapiro Speaks at Berkeley This Week. He's speaking actually tomorrow evening at UC Berkeley, and you may have seen some of the appearances that he's doing. We're going to talk about that and what he's discussed and what it looks like in terms of the conditions for his speech. Is he going to have some real police protection from the Berkeley Police Department. It looks like he's going to have at least somewhat decent protection over there, but it is crucially important that he speaks there, that he speaks on the topic that he's discussing, which is the inappropriateness of the use of force in the context of political discussion, political debate. In other words, why Antifa shouldn't be doing what they're doing, using force to try to shut down speech. Um, so it's crucial that he go there. He speak. He say what he's good, you know says what he's going to say, and then also that I would say at least some people are made to see how wrong it is that a group like Antifa is trying to shut down events like this via force. How ridiculous it is! How you know someone coming up there and stating an opinion with which you disagree is not the equivalent of an assault to be countered by, you know, self-defense force or whatever it is that Antifa rationalizes that they're doing. 
like I said, I've got a whole list of program notes. There's other topics as well. But one of the main things to discuss is really, you know, bring home to you what is at stake with this, right? What is at stake? Why is freedom of expression, freedom of speech so important? We're going to make the explicit tie today to the operation of reason. And that is why you're also seeing, if you're looking over in the program notes, some of the things that reason provides for our lives that makes better in our lives. And that's going to end up leading us into some other topics as well. And I've got a little bit of music to talk about at the end. You too is out there with a new song. We'll have a little bit to discuss with that. Okay. So people in the chat room are saying, yes, they do have sound. Okay. Maybe you just got sound. Had a little trouble refreshing at the beginning. It does happen. And, you know, again, out there, you're on using some resources from Paris or something as well. If you want to call in and talk about any of the stuff that I've got on those program notes, the number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. First link that I've got there in the program notes is that Shapiro was on Fox and Friends this morning. He's out on the left coast like I am. So I can only imagine appearing on Fox and Friends, what that's like, you know, in terms of getting up super early in the morning and getting yourself to some sort of studio and trying to look like something. I don't know if I can do it. I would try. Excuse me. I got some weird tickle in my throat, probably because of my cold. One sec. Okay, sorry about that. I do um got a little bit of a, a sore throat and a thing with a cold. So I will try to spare you crazy sound effects and things like that. I'll turn the microphone off and, and cough for a second now and then. Sorry. Um in any event he goes on and you know, they exact they have exactly the right idea over at Fox and Friends that you know, this idea that Berkeley should be quote bracing as a Los Angeles Times article, the headline put it, bracing for Shapiro's arrival, that counseling sessions are needed because the poor snowflakes at Berkeley who hear his message are going to feel that they don't have an adequate sense of belonging or whatever it is that they they put. So, you know, first of all, I says, well, you know, physically, of course, look how intimidating I am. No, he doesn't look physically intimidating, and, and, and I've met him, and no, he's not some strapping person. I think he keeps himself in okay shape, especially given what he does, but no, he's he's not a physical intimidation at all. Uh, all he's doing is he go, he's going out there, and he's making a very articulate case for some ideas with which most of the students at Berkeley disagree. They actually have to confront ideas that they disagree with if he comes there and speaks and they decide to go to the lecture, you know, this idea that anywhere on their campus are, you know, there are some non-leftist ideas being vocalized. They, they just seem to not be able to handle it. Shapiro is quite funny, even at three in the morning or whenever it was that he had to do this. He says, as I've said before, if you feel you need counseling, for my speech, you know, as a result of his speech, he says, you probably need psychiatric care in some way. So I guess it's appropriate. But 
he says what he talks about in the speech is that violence in political settings is not appropriate. He said, usually you would think that's civics 101. He says he also talks about the fact that in America, you're living in the freest country in the history of the world. There aren't people out there trying to stop you. If, for instance, you have a complaint, and I'm skipping down, uh, if you see instances of racism and instances of sexism or homophobia or bigotry, all of us stand with you. You can name the instance, but you can't actually just sit there and blame America for all, all your problems. End quote from Shapiro. Now, you know, again, this is quarterbacking from, you know, he was at there at three in the morning and doing this. But these leftists, they actually do believe that we are stopping them. We are setting up obstacles. Why? Because we don't want things like socialized medicine or other assorted freebies uh, to be given out to these snowflakes. So they actually do see us as, as an obstacle in some way because we're refusing to be slaves, right? It's not all about, for them, it's not all about racism, sexism, homophobia, or bigotry. It's also about non-leftist ideas, non-totalitarian ideas, non-socialist ideas. And that's where part of the problem is. Now he says, um, maybe they do want to hear about Antifa, but they just don't want to hear it from a conservative guy. And Shapiro says, that's right. Uh, he says that, you know, Antifa, uh, actually in the hard left, have been calling him a white supremacist. They've been calling Shapiro a white supremacist. When, if you don't know Shapiro's background, he's an Orthodox Jew, and he was the number one target of the so-called alt-right white supremacist in 2016. Why? Because he refused to vote for Trump. He was a never-Trumper. He didn't vote for Trump or Hillary, he says. So, uh, you know, this idea that somehow he's a white supremacist when he's been one of the prime targets of it is ridiculous. Now, he did speak at Berkeley last year, and there was no problem. But what has happened since then? There was Milo's appearance, and Antifa has been emboldened due to the lack of response from security and from the Berkeley police and stuff. So now when someone as rational and relatively mild as Shapiro comes, they feel, okay, they're going to go ahead and now try to shut him down too. This is how it goes, right? Milo, maybe you don't like Milo. I, you know, I, there are some things about Milo that disappoint me. There are some things about Milo that I like, you know, his bravery and going out there and, and speaking on you know, uh, in the cause of freedom of expression. But yeah, there's a lot that's offensive there as well. But once you try to shut down Milo, and if you say, okay, well, you know, they shut down Milo, no big deal. Next, they're going to come for Shapiro. And next, they're going to come for your own Brook or, you know, whoever next more reasonable person you think is out there. He says, one of the, uh, this is a uh, quoting from Shapiro, one of the reasons it's imperative that conservatives go to Berkeley is to demonstrate that this is not going to be a fascist town run by people like Antifa. It's a free country. Berkeley's still part of the United States and the First Amendment still applies. And he says, by the way, there's an incredible demand for conservative speakers there. And this is really one of the tragic things about this appearance. It was a 2,000-seat theater, but Berkeley sliced off the top half of the theater and said nobody could come into the top half of the theater because they're afraid that Antifa 
was going to come literally rip bolted chairs off the floor and hurl them down onto the audience. So they took the top 1,000 seats away from them. But he said they sold out a 1,000-seat theater in 40 minutes. They probably could have filled a four or 5,000-seat theater. So there is a demand for dissenting views at Berkeley, which I think is, is a great thing. And again, it's it's imperative that this go off in a smooth way. I, really, what they sh, you know should have done is open that up and just have a pile of security and not allow Antifa to. I mean, it takes a lot to pull out a bolted seat, right? So you would assume that once somebody started to try to pull out the seat, that they could be stopped if there was adequate security. They're being charged enough for security. There's this extra fifteen thousand dollar fee or whatever that they had to to pay for this, but no, you know, they can't give them the extra thousand seats there, you know, there already is what you might call some censorship going on with this in, in terms of not allowing people to come and hear his message. One person tweeted that uh, Shapiro is a category five hurricane and Hasselback from the uh, Fox and friends is saying that, the headline from LA Times pointing it out. I've got it in the program notes. Berkeley is bracing for the visit. Berkeley newspaper said, quote, we are deeply concerned about the impact some speakers may have on individuals' sense of safety and belonging. No one should be made to feel threatened or harassed. Support services are being offered and encouraged, end quote. Now, who's being threatened or harassed? It's not the leftists, right? He's not threatening. He's saying if there's racism and everything else, go out and deal with it. Um, we stand with you. We're, we are not obstacles in your way. But as I said, it, this is something that they're going to have to take on more. It's not just about racism and sexism and homophobia, et cetera. It's, it's also about the refusal to give in to the socialized now, there, there's another interesting thing that Shapiro says in here, and this is going to feed into the value of, of what's at stake here, right? Because if Shapiro is not allowed to give his talk, if the intimidation, the violent tactics of Antifa and whoever decides to join them end up shutting down this event or shortening it or doing anything, I mean, it needs to go on exactly as planned, the full length, the Q&A everything they they need to make no alteration whatsoever in this to show that you can actually conduct this event um, what's the importance of this the importance of this is the value of freedom expression and Shapiro talks a little bit about the value of hearing ideas with which you disagree in this appearance this morning at Fox and Friends they were asking, they're saying, well, so, you know, if you're a conservative, what's the purpose of sending your kid to a place like Berkeley? And he says, look, if before you send the kid there, so if by the time the kid is 18, then the kid is, he says, conservative, but I would say non-leftist, you could say objectivist or, you know, whatever, but a non-leftist, as long as your kid is a non-leftist by the time he or she gets sent to a place like Berkeley, Shapiro's view is that it's good because it gives you a chance to try out your ideas. Um, you get to sit there and discuss and everything. Now, of course, that is going to 
be dependent on the premise that it's, you know, you're not going to get a violent reaction, that you're actually going to be able to have these discussions in a civilized way. I think it's also on, on, you know, there's, there's an underlying premise there too that he's assuming, which is that the child is someone who is not going to be intimidated. Like Shapiro obviously has never been intimidated by people who don't share his views. He's willing to just go out there and talk to anybody and, and whatever the consequences. Um, but he said he found it extremely valuable. He went to UCLA, very liberal, and you know he's a right winger. He went to Harvard Law, very liberal. He's a right winger. And he says, I always thought it was a neat thing, actually. He says, I got to test out my ideas and test them against the best the left had to offer. He says, the problem is that if you're on the left, you never hear anybody with a different point of view. And so you come up with this notion that's been imbibed wholesale by the Democratic Party that everybody on the right, because you've never heard a right-wing argument, everybody on the right must be a Nazi, and Nazis are worth punching. John in the chat room is saying that I would love to be a fly on the wall in one of these counseling sessions. I think he's right, though, you know, that probably if you are this person who actually needs counseling because you've heard ideas with which you disagree and you're so emotionally damaged and traumatized, then maybe you do. Maybe you actually do need some psychiatric help and and counseling isn't such a bad thing. So that's the status on this. There have been only 1,000 tickets released. They're not going to release the other 1,000. They've hit the maximum. It's all sold out. If you want to go, then Daily Wire has a post. Here's how to get standby tickets for Shapiro's Berkeley speech. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go and line up at the ticket window at 5 o'clock tomorrow evening. And then if people have not picked up their tickets, the ones who have already reserved tickets, by 6.30, then they're going to go ahead and release those tickets to whoever's there waiting for standby tickets. So it'll be in the order received. So if you would like to try to go to that. But again, I think there is a bit of censorship in Berkeley's refusal to open up the full auditorium. You know, Taking a bolted seat out of the floor is not an instantaneous or easy thing to do. Certainly security would be able to detect any person who was attempting to do that and, and stop them before they did any damage. So I, it's, I think it's just an excuse not to give the, the full audience, and, and that's, that's really a shame. So back over to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. I want to got do a little flashback, right? Oh, and one of the things that Shapiro talked about in the Fox and Friends appearance this morning is that just last night, just last night, the Berkeley City Council voted to allow the Berkeley police to use pepper spray in the context, you know, to for protection at the event. And this was just last night. So if you imagine that, that they weren't, you know, even equipped to allow that before, that that's pretty crazy. Uh, says Shapiro, city council last night approved the resolution, finally allowing the police to use pepper spray against violent protesters. He says, this shows you where Berkeley is, that they weren't allowing police to do that before. 
but they set up a cordon, apparently a hard cordon around the auditorium. They shut down six buildings, including the student union. They said there's going to be a very visible police presence. So I think this is good because if you flash back, and we talked about this on the show, flash back to, I believe, August 29th. Let me go over to the Hot Air article. August 29th is when this was published. Maybe the statement was like the day before or so. The Berkeley mayor, Berkeley mayor, and his name is Jesse what? Let me see. I remember it was Jesse. (laughs) They're not saying his name. Oh, Jesse Aragon. That's right. So he says, I don't want Berkeley being used as a punching bag. And I have to give you part of a statement because you just won't believe what he was encouraging back at the end of August. I don't want Berkeley being used as a punching bag. I'm very concerned, he says, about Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter and some of these other right-wing speakers coming to the Berkeley campus because it's just a target for Black Bloc Antifa to come out and commit mayhem on the Berkeley campus and have that potentially spill out on the street, Arguin said, referring to militants who have also been called anti-fascists or antifa. He says, I obviously believe in freedom of speech. This is quoting from him. I obviously believe in freedom of speech, but, it's always the but, but there is a line between freedom of speech and then posing a risk to public safety. That is where we have to be really very careful. That is while, uh, that while protecting people's free speech rights, we are not putting our citizens in a potentially dangerous situation and costing the city hundreds of thousands of dollars fixing the windows of businesses, end quote. I love how he throws in businesses there because he wants to get the right wing sympathetic to his comment by saying, oh, look, business is at stake. But if anybody, again, understands the real value at stake here, that we need to preserve freedom of expression above all of these things. And if you come out there with an adequate police presence, and if you actually allow the police to use at least pepper spray against violent protesters, then perhaps we can preserve this important value that is necessary for business and everything else. Because what is the value? The value is reason. And like I said, I'm going to talk explicitly about that in several minutes here. Now, Antifa is, of course, the risk to public safety. And here he is. You know, what is he doing? He was actually urging Berkeley to cancel these events. He was saying you shouldn't. Why? Because we don't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars fixing the windows of city businesses while I sit on my hands and not order the police to do their jobs. Is, is the other implicit thing there. There's been stuff going around recently on Twitter and, and whatever about Berkeley being sticklers on parking tickets and jaywalking and all this stuff. But what do they do? They let Antifa run wild. They really better do their job tomorrow night. We're all going to have to be watching for the news to see what happens because it is. It's an important test case. Can someone who is calm and reasonable obviously harmless like Shapiro, not inciting violence, right? Can he go to a college campus in the United States in 21st century and just give a talk? And if people disagree, can they disagree in a civilized manner like we do in a country that is founded 
on reason, individual rights, a pursuit of happiness. That's the, the test that we have. But, you know, here's the Berkeley mayor saying, yeah, let's give Antifa their heckler's veto. We know that they're going to try to riot. We know that they are. And why don't we just shut down the event so that we don't have to deal with the messy problem? Why don't we just let their threats silence the speech? I mean, it's no skin off his back. He doesn't agree with any of the ideas that are going to be said anyway. And I can't believe he thought that he could get away with saying things like that. So the council, I don't know what their structure is in terms of the council and if he had to participate in that or not, but it's good at least. Pepper spray. Pepper spray is somewhat of a deterrent, but how ridiculous that they couldn't even use pepper spray before this. So that's the one thing, the police presence. The other thing is UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley, as we've talked about before, is offering support and counseling for students offended by Shapiro's speech. And there's been a lot of hay made of that. But the question I wanted to ask, and I wanted to ask it in connection with the 9-11 Monday, which is, did Berkeley offer counseling to students who were traumatized by 9-11? I mean, this is a real cause for trauma. And I bet you, I mean, you'd have to go back all those years and, and look at the history, but I bet you that the explicit overture and the letter to the campus community offering counseling services was probably not nearly as emphatic for that as it was for this. Um, it, it, it's really pretty revulsifying what, what they've done there. And as I said, LA Times, their headline, Berkeley braces for right-wing talk show host Ben Shapiro's visit. The word braces sounds like you are. You're preparing for category four or five hurricane to hit your campus. Now, there are people who are very, what I would call charitable. Charity is a, you know, sort of a term that we use in academia where you will look at the arguments made and, and the wording that someone uses by an intellectual opponent, you know, an intellectual opponent, and you give the most charitable interpretation that you can. Here's the headline, and some people are willing to give this a charitable interpretation there, the reason that they're bracing is not, you know, because of Shapiro, but it's because they're worried about the fallout from Antifa. But there are ways that this headline could have been worded if that's what the Los Angeles Times meant. Especially in the day of Twitter, there is no excuse for not saying exactly what you want in a small number of words and characters. So they could have said, braces for reaction to right-wing talk show host Ben Shapiro's visit. Why couldn't they have said that? And in fact, if you read this article from LA Times, again, it's in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com, you will see that the thing that they're talking about most is all of the poor students are going to have to hear stuff that they disagree with. You know, they do talk about the police presence and everything else, but then here is a letter um, to the, it's from the provost, Paul um, Alevisados, Alevisados, I think that's a decent pronunciation given that I hadn't been exposed to the last name before, Alevisados, he wrote a, um, you know, kind of a memo to the entire UC Berkeley community and 
Quoting from him, quote, we are deeply concerned about the impact some speakers may have on individual sense of safety and belonging. We've heard this wording before. No one should be made to feel threatened or harassed simply because of who they are or for what they believe. What it is that they are concerned about is people's reaction. Somehow if you're leftist and somebody comes on your campus and dares to disagree with the message that's being fed to you by your professors all day, every day in, you know, 99% of your classes. Maybe there's a token conservative or two at UC Berkeley. I know John Yu is there and he's quite good. He's in the law school. You feel threatened or harassed simply because Ben Shapiro sits there and talks. And that's the emphasis of this article. So the idea that you're going to give a charitable interpretation to this headline and say, oh, what they really meant is the, you know, the reaction. No, they are bracing because of Shapiro. They are giving in this headline, the Los Angeles Times is giving credence to the idea that a conservative speaking is something that you need to brace for, that you could be actually hurt by having to listen to the ideas of a Ben Shapiro, et cetera. It is ridiculous. What I'd like to say to LA Times, and I have said in so many words on different posts on social media and stuff, is that every day when I go and read Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, I have to brace myself for outright attacks on my values. And for instance, the New York Times promoting socialism blatantly on its pages to the extent of publishing ridiculous op-eds about how sex under socialism is so much better. That's how disgusting it gets. So every day, mainstream media attacks my values and, in fact, is promoting physical attacks on my person because of the politics that they're promoting. But no, no, no. They are going to use this as a braces for Shapiro. Shapiro doesn't mean any harm to anyone. He is not promoting any measure in government, well, except for his prohibition on abortion. I'm going to have to take that on at some point. But otherwise, he and I probably agree politically on almost anything. And uh, I, I don't know about gay marriage. I have to talk to him about gay marriage and, and look into that. But I, you know, I know he's a, a opponent of abortion and believes that it would be right to ban abortion. Peaceful guy. He should be heard out. You don't have to brace for him. You shouldn't have to brace for him, not in 21st century America. I've got a call. I'm going to go ahead and grab it, but I'm going to do so after I give you a little musical break here. Okay, I'm back. And as I said, topic for today, reasons plenty, what's at stake when Ben Shapiro visits Berkeley this week. So far, I've just really been talking about the preparation, everybody girding themselves for the event and what they're saying it's going to hold. I haven't really talked yet about what is the connection between 
freedom of expression and the operation of reason, which is the plenty that I want to discuss as we go on. But before we move on to that segment, I want to go ahead and take the caller that I have waiting here. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, it's Josh from uh, New Hampshire. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Hi. I'm good. I'm good. Um, I wanted to call about the Antifa and the mayor. Um, I saw an article saying that the mayor wanted to classify Antifa as a gang. And Mm -hmm. I've seen some things online about, like, petitions to try and classify Antifa as as terrorists, which Mm -hmm. I think is a little bit worrying because of the Patriot Act and how – then they could just uh, the ramifications of that. But um, if your thoughts on if that's even necessary to classify them as a gang, or if it's just um, bring in the police and enforce, you know, no violence, and then they will just go away. That they're just getting emboldened because of the lack of um, police action. And and that's encouraging them to get him more and more violent towards anyone. Yeah, I, I would say the lack of response in the past, of course, has emboldened them. I think also that the fallout from Charlottesville emboldened them, right? Because, it, you know, in, in Charlottesville, it just so happened that the death of that poor woman was caused by the right-wing fanatic. But... Because Antifa also uses force, there could have just as easily have been a death caused by them. But, you know, it turns out that everybody was somehow, you know, letting Antifa smell a little bit like a rose after Charlottesville. And that combined with the lack of police response with Milo and everything else has made Antifa, you know, emboldened and therefore also more dangerous. They're more willing to use violence and intimidation tactics. Uh, the calling them of, you know, a gang and all this, and then what the implications would be for police power and Patriot Act and stuff. I've talked about a little bit of, of kind of my speculation and suspicion before that, you know, why would this Jesse Arguin, the mayor of, you know, Berkeley want to be throwing this out there. And I think part of it is because the leftist sense that, there might be a bit of sympathy in our country right now for actual limitations on freedom of expression. And there is, you know, there, there's, there's a bit of confusion out there about, you know, do we really have to allow hate speech? And in Canada, of course, they have made vast, you know, headway towards banning all sorts of hate speech and even the use of improper pronouns when you were, you know, refer to somebody who is, exploring different genders or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, You can apparently go to jail for this. And Jordan Peterson's been on the front lines of that battle up there. So people sense, some of the leftists sense that Americans, if they're not thinking too clearly, could be receptive to limitations on freedom of expression. And if you can, you know, as the mayor or the leftist mayor of UC Berkeley, if you can say, oh yeah, you know, I'm Mr. Police and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a hawk like tough guy and I'm going to call Antifa as it is. They are thugs and maybe it's worth calling them gangs and stuff. You know, what, what rights of theirs you would actually be violating. You'd have to spell out a little bit more for me, Josh, because they, they're actually using violence and intimidation tactics. And 
you know, what, what rights should we try to preserve for people who do that? I, I don't know. But point being is that I think he is trying to say, yeah, yeah, they're really dangerous. And there's certain events that bring these people out. And maybe you should start to consider for the sake of our businesses, shutting some of these speech events down. Right. Yeah. I don't um, think that, I don't think that um, calling them a gang would, would violate any of their rights, but calling them terrorists could, you know, with the Patriot Act, you could be held without a trial or being, being charged and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those things are ramifications on being quote, quote, terrorists. And then we're if, if, also if you're a domestic terrorist, can that happen? If you're a domestic terrorist, can that happen? I believe so under the Patriot Act. Because I know but overseas I terrorists, yeah, you know, they get them on the battlefield and then they can be held. But because we are not clarifying mm-hmm. be, be, between terrorists overseas, because we are using this very generic term of terrorism and not actually saying, you know, Islamic terrorism or, um, you know, jihadism or something like that, we're using mm-hmm. this tactic. And, they, and Antifa is actually using that tactic, too, of terrorism, but mm-hmm. calling them terrorists. Um, and, and since we have a, quote, war on terrorism, I think that um, it raises um, the issues that, that the Patriot Act, because it's so vague and so wide, wide yeah. scope, I mean, that and, would and be here, a problem. And here's the other thing, too. You know, again, kind of following up on the, the implications of calling them terrorists, in the war – the war against terrorism that our country has thrown us into and they won't, you know, name the enemy. I, I loved people turning cartwheels trying to explain, by the way, you know, that Trump didn't use the words Islam or jihad anywhere in his whole speech on uh, Monday. People were saying, well, they, they expected him to, and he never does the expected. And he was just keeping everybody on their toes. It's like, no, if you have a moral obligation to do something, it doesn't matter whether it's expected of you or not, you do it. He had a moral obligation, I think, to do it on Monday. And he, he uh, reneged on his obligation. But anyway, um, point being is with terrorism, right? If you, if you're in this war on terrorism, what, what have we done in the past when we were in a war with terrorists, we have, as Americans, given up some of our freedoms. We have an NSA that's out of control, that's engaging in bulk surveillance without probable cause, without particularized suspicion, no warrants required. And that continues to go on, no matter what they say about Snowden's revelations and the effects and everything else. There's maybe a tiny little dampening effect due to everything that happened post-Snowden. But until we get that Supreme Court ruling that puts all this stuff back under the Fourth Amendment, we are still at the mercy of the legislature, and the legislature hasn't given us hardly anything in terms of you know, curbing the NSA's power to monitor us without a warrant. So that's a huge thing. And so I think if you call these people domestic terrorists, one of the things, again, uh, you know, Arguin was explicit about this. He wanted Berkeley to cancel the events. He wanted Berkeley to cancel Ann Coulter, Milo, and probably also Shapiro, because it's better to do that than have hundreds of thousands of dollars of damages from these gangs, these terrorists, whatever you want to call them. 
and, uh, you know, police, law and order, safety, whatever's required for your safety, as Trump said in his speech on Monday, right? I'm going to keep you safe no matter what it takes. What it takes for these guys is a totalitarian police state without Americans having their rights to freedom of expression, privacy, whatever else. They're willing to sacrifice any of that for so-called safety, right? Yes, Give I mean that, that's 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 my sense. That's my sense that you know. When, and and I remember when some of you know, like I think Washington Post had an article saying, yeah, you know, Antifa is a gang. They're terrorists, and and some of these left wing, like you know, Aragorn or whatever, is willing to call them that. I don't trust their motives, not a single bit. They're doing it in order to say, yeah, we need to shut down freedom. Yeah. I mean, you can tell me if yeah. I'm wrong, but I'm I'm being very pessimistic. No, I, I, I agree. I, I'm just. <laughs> I I just wonder. Yeah, I'm not sure about the motive for for trying to classify Antifa as a gang. Um, I did see right before that a big push to try and classify them as 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 terrorists, but. Um, and and I think there's there's a petition and they're supposed to um, the the White House is supposed to give a response to a petition that has over a hundred thousand things and I think they were up over two hundred thousand last time I looked and so they should be saying something about it but um, which I don't think that they would classify them as because of the because of the the issue of of having a war on terrorism, but I don't think I don't see why he would be pushing for them to be classified as a gang. But I don't even necessarily think that's necessary. He could just enforce like no violence. No, you don't exactly. Need to classify and and them this as a gang. this is the thing, right? I would be very skeptical. You know, first of all, if the police just did their jobs, then this would never get to a point where you would even think about. Antifa doing things that are tantamount to gang activity. Uh, they would have been shut down and told that they are not going to get what they want. They're not going to be able to stop these conservative speakers from speaking, right? Uh, if, if they can't get what they want using their tactics, then eventually they will stop. But unfortunately, they have been emboldened, enabled, reinforced at every step all over the country because of the local authorities not doing what they needed to do to preserve this tremendous value. It's quite sad actually. So yeah, let's hope, let's hope, let's hope tomorrow. I mean, we're all going to be watching, right. To see what happens tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks for taking I think you, yeah, yeah. I thank you for your call, Josh. I don't know if it was the first one. Uh, it was right. Yeah. 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 So I appreciate it. I just it. messaged you online. Yeah. Excellent. So hopefully we'll, we will talk again. I do have another call, someone who just said, just put the question icon on. But what I want to do is I want to get a little bit into the substance of what's at stake here, and then I'll go ahead and take your call. So if you can wait for a few, that would be wonderful. What What is at stake, right? Freedom of expression. Yes, well, freedom of expression is important. And we might say, well, we need freedom of expression in order to achieve change, political change, cultural change, those of us who see ourselves uh, on the forefront as intellectual activists of some kind, trying to promote better ideas so that, of course, you can just in general help people's lives be better and, and happier. This is a goal of mine. 
but also to eventually lay the groundwork for political change here, abroad, all over the world. We got to convince people of the right ideas. You can't do that unless you can express yourself, unless you have freedom of expression. However, free speech is not just about politics. That is not all that is at stake. And that's really the thing that I wanted to get across in today's show, that that's not the only thing that's at stake. And so what I want to do, uh, I have sung the praises of Ankar Gatte a number of times, most recently because I read an essay of Ankar Gatte that made me able to do a job that I have for helping to adapt Atlas Shrugged into a graphic novel. I had a very long speech that I needed to condense and Ankar Gatte wrote an essay about what are the dramatic purposes of that speech within the context of the novel. So essentially what had to be included in my, you know, I took this speech, it was 60 pages long and I took it down to 12 and a half. That was a vast job and, and Ankar helped me do it. But on any topic, whenever I've heard him speak, he's just clear. And, and you want to know, okay, for reason, our faculty that allows us to survive. And, you know, again, I've talked about this on some recent shows. If you think about any of the values that sustain your life, food, clothing, shelter, we're going to have some examples from medicine in today's show, food, clothing, shelter, medicine, things that preserve and sustain your life, make it better. Any of those values were made possible because of somebody exercising their rational faculty. So then the question is, what's the connection between freedom of expression and the operation of that rational faculty? If, for example, you didn't allow Tim Cook to tweet about DACA, suppose Trump told Tim Cook, sorry, dude, um, you are not going to be allowed to tweet about DACA, otherwise we're going to put a 100% tax on every iPhone that you bring in that was manufactured in China. Suppose Trump does that to Tim Cook and just shuts down his speech. Now, you might say, well, look, if Tim Cook can't speak, he can still be creative and create these products and everything else. Can't he still do that? And I would argue no. And also Ankar would argue no. And, and I'm going to refer you, there is a book, that the Ayn Rand Institute published last year. It's edited by Steve Simpson. It's called Defending Free Speech. I put the link to it in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. And every time you buy a book through either something that I plop in the program notes or if you use my Amazon link in the right-hand column, you are supporting my show a little bit. So thank you very much. And you're not paying any extra. It's just a percentage that Amazon gives me. So I thank you for doing that. This is a pretty cheap book, so it's not like I'd, I'd get a lot. But let me tell you, Ankar Gatte did an interview and he was asked in that interview, why is the right to freedom of speech such a crucial value? What is the importance of this? And here's Ankar. He says, the right to freedom of speech is a crucial value because knowledge is a crucial value. Knowledge is power. It gives one the ability to achieve the goals which further one's life. Think of any profession from auto mechanic to computer programmer to heart surgeon. What enables members of these professions to rebuild defective engines, to write software, to help manage a company's inventory, and to perform open-heart surgery? The root of any individual's productive actions is the knowledge he has acquired. But knowledge requires a free mind, 
A mind can attain knowledge only if it is free to ask questions, free to follow the evidence wherever it leads, free to weigh logically the facts it has discovered. A mind cannot be forced. Knowledge cannot be produced by the barrel of a gun. And he says a government can suppress an idea, but that does not convince anyone that the idea is false. A government can threaten an individual with fines, imprisonment, even death, unless he profess some other idea, but that does not convert the idea into a truth in his mind. He says, imagine for a moment that I was made president of the United States. Can you imagine how wonderful? He says, and then tried to spread Ayn Rand's philosophy of reason by physical force. A contradictory pursuit, if ever there was one. I'll pause for a second and just let you know that there are people who would like to use physical force to allow into our country only those people who agree with certain philosophical ideas. And I, that is similarly a contradictory pursuit, but let, let us go on here. He says, imagine that I threatened citizens with imprisonment unless they professed that rational selfishness is a virtue. He says, even though I regard this idea as true, my attempt to spread its truth is worse than futile. My threats would create no thought process in the mind of an individual citizen. Indeed, I would paralyze his rational faculty. He would be afraid to think openly about or voice ideas in ethics and would simply parrot slogans he does not understand or accept. He says, this is the nightmare of totalitarian dictatorships where the minds of millions of starving individuals are destroyed as they are forced to chant, say, that Kim Jong-il is great and communism is the salvation of the masses. Knowledge, says Ankar, rational understanding requires a free mind. Such, in essence, is the foundation of an individual's right of freedom of thought and speech. And then a necessary implication, he goes on to say, is that freedom of expression protects a mind that reaches falsehoods as well, even evil, irrational falsehoods. If you have the right to exercise your mind, it necessarily includes the right to choose not exercise it. Skipping down, he says, notice that an individual uttering the most vicious falsehoods does not infringe on anyone's rights. If someone declared that Asians are more morally corrupt, and he says, I'm half Indian, that person, he says, neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg in Thomas Jefferson's memorable words. Such an individual does not interfere with my liberty. I remain free to think, to express my thought in material form, and to ignore his falsehoods or oppress, excuse me, oppress, oppose them with better ideas if I so choose, end quote from Ankar. And that's really the message that you need to tell the snowflakes at Berkeley, that even if Ben Shapiro is wrong in what he's saying, which he's not, because what Ben Shapiro is saying is that it's wrong to use force in this context. He, you know, he's saying, don't use force against me because of ideas that I express. And they're saying, well, you know, you're initiating force against us. It's, it's so it gets comical at a certain point. They are nonetheless free to think, to express their thoughts, their ideas, etc. They don't need counseling. They don't need any sort of special protection or anything else. The ones who are violent uh, the, you know, Antifa, they need to be told in no uncertain terms that that's not going to be allowed. Shapiro is coming there. He is speaking his mind. He's not inciting violence. He's not violating the rights of anybody else. He is discussing ideas. Imagine that. 
discussing ideas on a college campus and having, you know, a rational discussion, accepting questions, having a debate with some of the questioners. Let's just have that. Let's just have that. And instead, what do you have? You have Antifa. They are set on shutting it down with violence. What I've called this in the past, and I think the term is perfect, is vigilante censorship. That's what Antifa hopes to do. Groups like Antifa, they are upset that UC Berkeley, you know, the institution, the quasi-government institution of UC Berkeley is allowing this event to go on. They are upset that the mayor of Berkeley, with whatever jurisdiction that he has, didn't actually shut it down. Yeah, he sort of encouraged Berkeley in a statement to give in to the heckler's veto, but Antifa would want them to do more. They want actual censorship. They think that censorship with respect to ideas like Shapiro is proper. They think government should come in and use force and stop Shapiro from speaking. And because they haven't gotten that, they think they are justified in going in and doing the job that they think government should do. They are engaging, again, in what I say, what I call vigilante censorship and we need to not let this tactic succeed you know maybe we call it the vigilantes veto instead of the hecklers veto some people are calling it the rioters veto as well but that's what they are attempting to do vigilante censorship and what they are you know what their enemy is is your mind and it's it's not surprising that they are an enemy of the mind that they're an enemy of knowledge they're an enemy of reason because all the things that antifa wants their totalitarian utopia are anti-mind, anti-reason, pro-enslavement of human beings. So as I said, reasons at stake, the, the functioning of the human mind is what's at stake at Berkeley. And what we're going to talk about in the next segment is some of the plenty that reason provides that we have reason to celebrate Look at all the wonderful things that reason makes possible just to give you a more value-oriented connection to that. I'm going to take a call first before my next break. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? This is John Roberts. Oh, great. Thanks for calling in. How are you? I am great. How are you, Amy Peacock? I'm doing pretty well here. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens tomorrow, and I'm, I'm pretty excited that Ben Shapiro's out there fighting the good fight the way that he is. I'm, I'm much happier that we've got a Ben Shapiro fighting this fight than just a Milo, because Milo is not nearly as effective an advocate of freedom of expression as Ben Shapiro is, right? Well, going back to your, your previous caller, um, this uh, the the idea of classifying Antifa or anybody else who's enjo- indulging in violence in the street, or more specifically in this case on college campuses, it's, it's, it's we don't need to go down that path of labeling them as terrorists. We need to be getting away from uh, that's not essentially uh, what they are about. They are uh, spokespeople. And not really spokespeople, uh, but they are acting um, from the ideas that they have learned in universities, or they're being put out by the universities. And once again, we need to be addressing the central, which is the ideas. And just on the assumption that many of the the members of Antifa were, in fact, students, I made a call to Lamar Alexander's office last week and put forth a suggestion 
since I had done a little research, and I saw that the only restrictions applying to financial aid regarding students committing crimes had to do with drug charges. Mm-hmm. Some change be made in that uh, regulation, law, whatever it is, such that any students receiving federal financial aid that are convicted of a violent crime should be under the same restrictions as drug law restrictions. I can't believe that they would give financial aid to people who've been convicted of violent crimes. That's really been happening? There's no restriction on it. Now, maybe there's something I don't know about or couldn't find about, but when I look it up, all right, honey, that's it for today. I'm sorry. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I could not find anything listed except drug charges. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that would be an important amendment to make. Of course, I would love it if our government would get out of the racket of inflating tuitions all over the country anyway by giving all of this federal financial aid. I mean, it's not a proper function Agreed. of government anyway. But, yeah, if you're going to do it, yeah, I know I know you agree with me. I just want to, got to state it explicitly for people who maybe aren't familiar with this show or, or the views that I express. But, um, yeah, if you're going to do it, certainly you would want to at least put that restriction on, wow, I'm surprised it wasn't there. So that's good for you that you – did that research and suggested. Have you heard any response from the office? Uh, no. Matter of fact, I also called, um, I'm sorry, I always mispronounce his name. I think it's Congressman Kristoff for this area. Mm-hmm. But um, they actually were more receptive and interested in what I had to say than uh, the Mar Alexander's office was. But um, no, they, I gave my name and address and everything and the phone number if they wanted to get back in contact with me. But um, I don't hold I have much confidence that any politician in existence today is going to act very much on principle and this uh, idea of some some petition regarding labeling antifa or their like as as terrorist is just another example of that but there's there's certain things that can be done to to tweak the system you know I it's my opinion that many of these people are students, and mm-hmm. they do they may still retain some ability to provide for themselves in some way, but the longer they stay in college, the more that disability that ability disappears uh, yeah I mean what you know what Shapiro was saying um Shapiro on his appearance this morning on on Fox and Friends, he said, yeah as long as you are." non-leftist by the time you go to a school like UCLA, UC Berkeley, Harvard, whatever, as long as you're non-leftist before you go there, then what you get is a great trial opportunity for your ideas. You know, you can test out your ideas and your ability to defend them and think through them and everything else. However, if you are not, you know, already kind of set in a non-leftist framework, by the time you get out of that, university environment your brain is mush you're going to be a total entitled right sniveling snowflake leftist it's terrible and i see them as well on that road if they're to the to the extent that they actually will follow their um professors um if not explicit instructions but implied uh ideas that it's okay to go out and commit violence against others to shut them up, then 
they are probably to the point where they would be scared of losing that financial aid and might think twice before they actually put that hood on. That is good thinking. So you would probably recommend that all of us do that with respect to our various Congress critters, right? Contact them and say – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go con- contact them and say similar that that we think that these restrictions should be, you know, put on the provision of financial aid. Right. I, I mean, I can't see why it isn't already. Why can't you, as someone that commits a violent crime, mm-hmm. they well they need to do a, a penalty for it, of course, and that in many cases. Why not nowadays, expulsion? I mean, why why not expulsion from a university? Oh, that that you know that is one restriction. Maybe it could be that the you know guys who provide financial aid, perhaps they you know the the guys, the bureaucracy that provides the financial aid, whoever those people are, these government minions who dole out our tax dollars to these sniveling brats. Okay, um, sorry. So these people, what I think what they are doing is they are counting on the universities to have a rational policy of expelling people who are violent, right? Because one thing that you have to do, and I did this in the past because I have, or I, I had, they're all, they're all gone now, but I had, you know, sort of government guaranteed student loans when I was going to UCLA. And one of the requirements, of course, is that you show continued proof of enrollment. You can't get these loans unless you're actually enrolled. And you shouldn't be able to be enrolled if you're violent. So it could be that the restrictions are implicit in that. But if the universities are not doing their job, and we saw, for example, when there was actual um, initiation of force when ARI people went and spoke at UCLA Law School and, and some of the people, you know, some of the students came up and actually just shoved a whole bunch of books off of a table physically, just came up and knocked a whole bunch of books off. There should have been consequences meted out by the school. Now, are you going to expel somebody Absolutely. just for pushing, you know, pushing books off a table? No. But the stuff that you heard about when Murray went to go to Middlebury, where they were physically blocking and intimidating and, and eventually ended up shutting this guy down, that sort of physical initiation of force, people should be expelled. And as soon as some people start to get expelled for this conduct and then, of course, lose student aid and lose, lose everything else, maybe they'll stop. They'll realize that there are consequences for initiating force in an environment where you're supposed to be expanding your knowledge. Knowledge and force, as Ankar was talking about, they're opposites. They need now, to learn. We're not, we're not anybody I call to act on that I don't know, but it doesn't hurt to call. Um, no, of and, course, and of course. That idea you, see, you, see, you see where my thinking is, right, that, that maybe it didn't occur to them to do this because they believe that the universities are expelling those who are violent. Well, if you're talking about the bureaucracy, I'm sorry, I just can't trust a bureaucrat. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe, I'm sorry, I can't even say that their heart's in the right place. Um, they, they're, they're a product also of that same system, and if they, their aspiration coming out of college was to seek a job, in the bureaucracy, then I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I wish I had um, I wish I had the same confidence about that as you do. Well, I know I was just I was trying to figure out why it was that this wouldn't be a restriction. You know, in the past, if you're going to go ahead and put drug crime 
in the list of criteria for eligibility for financial aid, you know, that you can't have committed a drug crime, why not other types as well? And I would assume I would assume that that restriction was put in, say, under like a George W. Bush or maybe the, you know, the elder Bush. And remember the whole just say no to drugs and everything. I bet a number of colleges have no policy for expelling people because of drug crimes only because of violent crimes. And that's why they would put that in there. So you see how my mind is doing this stuff. I do this all the time. Sorry. (laughs) That's probably why. Those those rules may not be there. Uh, because maybe they just they thought well okay well colleges are a a supposed to be a domain for the free exchange of ideas and maybe Mm -hmm. they thought well it'll never get that bad yeah well I mean they they had the 60s and there was violence in in the 60s as well so not so much but I think they thought that the the campus rules the expulsion and stuff would, would handle that but maybe not Anyway, it's going to be interesting. Let us know if you do get a response. I want to go ahead and go on to the Perfect. next segment where I talk about the, the plenty that, that Reason provides. Thanks for calling in, John. I appreciate it, and thanks for All listening. Right. Okay. Sure. Bye. Thank you. So we're going to go over, like I said, to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and talk about some of the plenty that's provided by Reason right after a short break. everybody. I am back. So welcome back to the show. We've got a little ways to go and I'm going to finally cash out this full argument because I'm saying, you know, what is at stake? Why is freedom of expression, which is on trial tomorrow night at UC Berkeley, why is it so important? Is it just about politics? Now, politics, of course, is quite important. And we're going to talk about one issue that's coming up right now in politics that you should be very concerned about. The Democrats are pushing for socialized medicine. Why? Because they have an opening. So politics in and of itself, discussion about politics, keeping that free and open and not censored and not subject to vigilante censors or government censors, this is a very important thing. But the other thing, as I said and quoted heavily from Ankar's essay in Defending Free Speech, his answer in defending free speech, the connection. It's the connection between knowledge and speech. And if, if you want to do a little thought experiment for yourself, you know, test out, is Ankar really right that you can't expand your knowledge, the knowledge that's required to produce life-sustaining values? You really can't do that if you don't have freedom of expression. What I can tell you, for example, just going out there and formulating my thoughts about the immigration debate. This is, you know, again, what's what's my profession? My profession is the expression of ideas and trying to teach and spread ideas. I have seen my own thinking get clearer 
each time I wade into debates like that, like immigration, there's another debate within objectivism called open objectivism. And every time that thing comes around and I have to hit it again from a different angle or formulate something, my knowledge expands, my understanding expands, my ability to deal with it and be confident in the rightness of my view expands. My willingness to go out and take action on the basis of my belief expands. So I can, and you guys can, you know, sort of in every area of your life, think about this. You've heard probably a million times that teaching, if you teach any subject under the sun, that you will understand it better. I had this experience. I was really good at economics in my undergrad. I ended up not majoring economics, but I had started that way. And I had a couple students in my class, this one class I was just acing and it was really easy for me. A couple students who said, Hey, will you teach us this before the exam? Even though I'm taking the class along with them. And we'd have these little sessions and I get up and chalkboard and teach and everything. And I knew it so much better after one of those sessions than before. I, every single time my knowledge would solidify and get better if I was teaching it to somebody else, explaining it to somebody else, having to argue or debate with somebody else, it is indispensable to be able to express ideas in order to gain and refine knowledge. Ask questions. If you can't ask questions, why this and why that and why everything else? If you feel intimidated because certain things must not be questioned, you will not expand your knowledge. So there, there it is. Now, what is it that knowledge and the reason that we use in applying our knowledge, what is it that it makes possible? I've just got a laundry list of some, a few, you know, it's kind of random because it's all in the news in the last couple of days, but there's some pretty awesome stuff in the program notes. Like I said, go to the blog, don't let it go.com. Check it out. First one I got in an email, a link in an email from LinkedIn today. So that's how that's the credit for that one. A story from BBC news. Zika virus used to treat aggressive brain cancer. Remember the Zika virus that has caused encephalitis, I think it's the, you know, where the microencephalitis or something where the brain of the baby of a mother who had the Zika virus, the brain is too small, the head is too small. Someone got the brilliant idea that because Zika attacks brain cells, that maybe Zika could be used to treat brain cancer. And it turns out to be a very smart thing to do. It turns out to have uh, shown quite a lot of promise. In a child's brain, there are still, you know, in a, a fetus brain for sure, there are still a lot of brain stem cells that are active, healthy, of course, brain stem cells, normal as part of the development of a fetus and child brain. But as we become adults, there are, we could all say unfortunately, right, uh, very few stem cells in, in the adult brain. And so Zika, because it targets those brain stem cells, is very narrowly targeted against the cancer stem cells that would appear in an adult brain with, you know, the different prevalent dangerous kinds of brain cancer. So in an adult brain, the predominant stem cells that might be hanging around in a brain that has cancer are cancer cells. 
Zika will target those specifically, and it seems like a very promising treatment. They're saying that it's going to be about 18 months before they can do human trials. It's been extremely successful on uh, mouse mice brains. So that's amazing and wonderful, and it's something that reason makes possible. Perhaps Zika, you know, it's thought of as this horrible, dangerous thing, and, you know, you should be allowed to question and say, okay, here's this thing that's very dangerous in one context, but what if we used it in a targeted, limited way in another context in order to treat cancer? In a totalitarian dictatorship where Trump is going to keep everybody safe, right, Um, maybe he doesn't want to hear anything about experimenting using the Zika virus. All he sees is he's, you know, he's not thinking in concepts even. He's got this picture in his mind of little kids with shrunken heads and stuff. And, oh, no, not Zika. You can't use that. And he wouldn't give permission. In a free society, you can do that. Another implication of freedom of expression is, like I say, political. Politics is important. When you think of a medical innovation like this, Zika virus used to treat aggressive brain cancer, I have no idea what it would cost. I do know that they were saying in the article that they were going to tweak the virus a little to make it not quite as aggressive so that, you know, maybe even if sometimes it's targeting healthy stem cells in the adult human brain, there's not going to be as much collateral damage from it, et cetera. So maybe there's some significant expense there. Will that be made available if we have socialized medicine? Will this treatment for cancer be made available if they, there is going to uh, be socialized medicine? And sure enough, that is what we have the leftists advocating for right now in our Congress. The Health 202, this is from the Washington Post, single-payer pushes the health care debate decidedly leftward. For months, this is a Washington Post article, as I said, for months, public debate over the future of U.S. health care system has been focused on one theme, the inability of Washington Republicans to repeal and replace Obamacare, a vow they made incessantly on the campaign trail. That narrative may not predominate much longer as single-payer legislation takes left stage today. Single-payer, in which the government would pay for almost all medical bills quote, is where the country has got to go, end quote. And who is that? Of course, it's Bernie Sanders. He said this in an interview at his Senate office. Again, quoting from Sanders, right now, if we want to move away from a dysfunctional, wasteful, bureaucratic system into a rational health care system that guarantees coverage to everyone in a cost-effective way, the only way to do it is Medicare for all, end quote. So, yeah. Sanders is seeing the opening created by the lame Republicans, the Republicans who cannot agree that, and I put a tweet out here to, you know, to this effect because CNN was putting something out there with, or no, excuse me, C-SPAN was putting Sanders all over the place. And Sanders is saying, oh, the Republicans have no credibility on health care anymore. And what's my answer? Maybe not. Why? Because they're not willing to say that health care is not a right. Republicans are not willing to say that health care is not a right. Ted Cruz, one of the best of the Republicans, had to be asked twice 
challenged twice by Sanders in a discussion, an hour-long discussion entirely on health care. And even when he was confronted directly the second time by Sanders and saying, you know, answer this question, is health care right? He hedged it a little bit. He hedged it. He talked about access in this. This is lame. Republicans are not doing this. Anyway, so Republicans are not willing to say that health care is not a right and that your proposal, talking to Sanders, socialized medicine is enslavement. You know, he tries to say, oh, it's you know, rational and it's going to be cost effective. Socialized medicine is enslavement. The government will be, because it's paying for everybody's health care, controlling the health care that everybody can get. So, you know, if, and if we shut down freedom of expression, you and I won't be able to go to Berkeley, for example, and explain why health care is not a right and why socialized medicine is enslavement and that none of those students should vote for a Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders wants to enslave us all. Those ideas will not be allowed on a Berkeley campus if we do not have freedom of expression. This is the kind of thing that's at stake. And, you know, by implication, also whether we're going to have access to wonderful treatments like a Zika virus, previously virtually untreatable aggressive brain cancer. More pleasant things. Let's get on to some more pleasant things that reason makes possible. Yesterday, Apple had its big announcements about the new, very, very tempting products. The other day I had posted about the Apple Watch Series 3, and you know, I was like, okay, you know, money is starting to burn a hole in your pocket, starting three, two, one, now, you know, everybody wants these things. The iPhone 8 looks, of course, beautiful. These phones always look beautiful. But what else about it? Tremendous upgrade in the camera, for example. Uh, They have this virtual reality thing that they're going to be bringing in, this portrait lighting technology that they have. They said the most durable glass ever, front and back, color-matched aerospace-grade aluminum band, Space gray, silver, and gold finishes, of course, water-resistant, dust-resistant, just a beautiful precision piece of technology. Wireless charging, wireless charging, 4.7-inch and 5.5-inch Retina HD displays, something called True Tone, which is going to make the display look even more beautiful than it has in the past. They look really great now. Dual domain pixels, a great view of the screen from almost any angle as well. In some ways, that's good, right? In other ways, sometimes you want privacy as to what you're looking at on your little phone. So you don't necessarily want everybody to have a great view from any angle. You kind of want to like turn it sort of away from people a little bit if you're looking at something. Maybe it's a message from a friend and you don't want everybody in the world to be able to read it or whatever. So it's a double-edged sword. It is, you know, it's nice to be able to view it from every angle, but that gives you less privacy as well if you're out there in the world looking at your phone. 12-megapixel camera, larger, faster sensor, new color filter, deeper pixels, optical image stabilization for photos and videos. This all sounds beautiful, and these come out of the mind's you know, we're still, I think, reaping the benefits from Steve Jobs, but all the wonderful people that he ended up bringing together and inspiring at Apple. 
products of human reason. And then, of course, there is the Apple Watch Series 3. And with the Apple Watch Series 3, we're going to get to meld the awesome benefits. You know, Because what, what do these devices do for us, these Apple devices? They allow us to connect with each other. They allow us you know, maybe in cases of the Apple Watch and stuff, monitor our exercise and make goals about our exercise um, to stay connected on social media, to take photos, to listen to music, um, all the wonderful things that these do. But now we're getting to a point with the Apple Watch and its monitoring capabilities that we're able to fuse this wonderful, beautiful technology that we've only seen before as enhancing our lives and making our lives more fun and more creative. That's how we see Apple products, right? More fun, more creative, easier connectivity with other people and stuff, more convenient connectivity. And of course, admiring these beautiful devices. This is how we've seen Apple. Now, we can also see these as health preservation devices. I remember reading one thing about the Apple Watch in advance that says that it might be used to monitor blood sugar. But I have this article in the program notes. Like I said, go to don'tletitgo.com and you can see it. Apple Heart Study. They're going to have an Apple Heart Study focusing on atrial fibrillation, which I can't say very well, 12 times fast fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, that trial is going to launch this year. In conjunction with Stanford Medicine, they're launching a new study on atrial fibrillation that attempts to detect heart rate irregularities using a consumer-grade wearable device, the Apple Watch. And they announced it during their big event yesterday. They're also working with the U.S. you know, FDA. It, it's sad that the FDA has to approve something like this. Let's just go ahead and look at the science of it and judge for ourselves whether we want to put this thing on our wrist and use it as a heart monitor. Anyway, atrial fibrillation, they say, is the change in the normal rhythm of the heart characterized by irregular beats, which is generally imperceptible by the sufferer. The disease is associated with a significantly higher rate of heart failure, stroke, and is linked to dementia as well. Between 2 and 3% of North Americans and Europeans are affected by it. 4% of people between 60 and 70 are afflicted. The number rises to 14% of those over 80. So it would be nice, right, if you had this device that could detect this. But, you know, again, unless there is, I would say, freedom of expression, the freedom to go ahead and ask these questions out there and pursue the answers and display you know, right now they're publishing this article about this. Apple got to go out there on stage and broadcast around the world. What if the FDA said, oh, we don't want you potentially putting this valuable medical information in the hands of citizens because we want to socialize medicine and we want to choose whether we're going to allow people to even know that they need treatment for conditions like this. We don't want them to have this watch, right? You can imagine how this goes. As it stands now, we have freedom of expression. It's a freer country. We don't have socialized medicine. We need to keep it that way. This is part of what's at stake at Berkeley tomorrow. Another great thing that is on the production line, General Motors. I'm not usually a fan of General Motors. It's benefited from government bailouts and 
all that kind of horrible stuff. First self-driving car is ready for production. So the technology of a self-driving car, whatever you may think of that pro or con or whatever, I think it has a potential at least to add a lot to human life. It would be wonderful in Los Angeles traffic in particular to have a self-driving car that would sit there and do the brake, gas, brake, gas, brake, stop, go, stop, go, stop, go for you instead of you having to do that and be very frustrated and this repetitive motion can't be good for anybody's body. You could just sit there and read a book and take your mind off the traffic. I could prepare for my show while I'm sitting in traffic. Whatever it is I want to do, drive a car in monotonous, mind-numbing traffic. That would be wonderful. Another thing that reason makes possible. Here's something a little more frivolous. Rob Abiera, by the way, sent me that last one. And then also this one, Nordstrom. Nordstrom is deciding to open a concept store that has no inventory, no inventory at all. So I guess you go there and you try things on, but you can't buy them there. You then buy them online, I suppose. So it's catering. They're trying out different business models, catering to people who just want to go to a store to try the thing on, and then they want to go ahead and buy it online, I guess, thinking they're going to get a better deal there, um, et cetera. They're trying out this concept. Can you even ask these questions and try out new concepts if, for example, you've got a Donald Trump running around, and he has done this recently, intimidating everybody, you know, oh, you shouldn't be able to buy things online because you might get them without having to pay sales tax. And if you didn't have to pay sales tax, then you're ripping people off the, you know, the people who need sales tax in their coffers for whatever reason, you're ripping them off. Would Nordstrom even be able to experiment with ideas like this, go out there and take surveys about whether this would be potentially successful before you even decide to open your doors like this? Could they do this? Could they throw those ideas out there and test them and, you know, poll test them and all that stuff if the government says, look, you just can't explore certain ideas because you're going to be depriving sales tax coffers or whatever it is. So, again, another benefit. There's all kinds of countless benefits that Reason is making possible for around you all day, me being able to sit here as well and talk to you guys. Now, what are we in the chat room? I'm running over here. Death panel has decided treatment costs too much for that. Let them die in the street. Yeah, for the people who have the atrial fibrillation, sure. Maybe the FDA would rather that than people actually be empowered and know that they might be at risk and go get the treatment that they need. Like I said, same for the Zika virus out there. Cutting costs. Yeah, the government, if, if the government is, going to be paying the bill. It's going to want to cut costs at any price. Other things in the program notes, we've got a lot of people are out there commenting on Hillary's new book. And one of the most embarrassing things for her is that she has in print in her book, What Happened, a complete misinterpretation of what 1984, George Orwell's 1984 was about. She tries and maybe, maybe it's deliberate. Maybe she wants to rewrite what 1984 is, you know, Big Brother, Newspeak style. Um, 
you know, the, the mini-truth style, right, the ministry of truth, maybe she wants to rewrite what that book means in that style, see if she can get away with it. But she's trying to say that you need to have the freedom to listen to the authority of government figures and that that's one of the things that were at stake in 1984, the freedom to listen to the authority of, of government figures. It's ridiculous. So thanks, Tim Sanifer, for tweeting that out there. I have one article that you can just look at as a follow-up from our discussion last week about the irrationality in the wake of the hurricanes, Harvey and Irma. Someone at the Fed is saying that these hurricanes will boost the economy over the long run, and Yahoo is publishing it. So there is another example of a, you know, people in our government and also another mainstream or at least a you know a main online outlet, Yahoo, putting that fallacy out there in the world still today, 21st century. And then we also have some good news. Uh, Macron in France is facing a protest because the labor unions are not happy that he wants to cut back on regulations of businesses. Why? Because if you cut back on regulation, there are more jobs. It's good for the economy, but labor unions don't like it. I've got an example of one of my tweets to our dear leader. Yesterday, Trump actually implied in his tweet that only those people who have, quote, access to him may properly criticize him. If you're criticizing him and you don't have, quote, access to him, then you shouldn't be doing it. That's pretty scary. Go ahead and check that out. Good news, the House has voted to curb assets seizures, uh, you know, asset forfeitures, which is wonderful. And that's despite the fact that Jeff Sessions had wanted to bring asset forfeiture back. So good for them. And a little bit of Sandra Boynton. Uh, Finally, I've got U2. You will see why U2 is U2 when you look at their live performance of their most recent song. I happen to prefer the Jezebel's version of this sort of melancholy romantic song. There's the Jezebel's at least has an implicit happy ending to it. Whereas you two is, you know, you're the best thing, but I'm walking away. Anyway, check those out. I'll talk to you guys Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 noon Pacific. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you then. <laughs>